Strikes Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Martis. And greetings, everyone. This is Julie Wrench. I welcome you to another episode of The Haunted Sea with Scott Martis. We have a great show for you today. Um, we're going to be talking about the quest for the Champlain Monsters. We have, of course, Scott Martis, and he is welcoming along his very good friend and collaborator, William Dragonus, today. Um, they will be discussing the history of the Champlain Monsters, uh, their activities there, their research investigations, and what is going to be coming up this fall for the both of them in regards to going to the lake and doing some more investigating. Um, with that, I'd like to go ahead and open up the show and bring you on. Scott Martis, how are you? I'm good, Julie. Thank you. Um, good. I am primarily known for the research that I have done looking into the question of the monster sightings at Lake Champlain. Uh, bottom line, we have an unsolved mystery. We have yet to establish for sure that there's an animal behind these sightings. I think there probably is, but we need to prove it. And somebody that I have worked with over the last nine years as part of that pursuit is William Draginis. Will, uh, go ahead and talk. Uh, Scott, hi, Julie. Hey, William. Um, thanks for having having me on. I appreciate it very much. There's a, a lot to talk about uh, detailing this research. Um, I really haven't gone public with any of this uh, yet, so uh, it's going to be an uh, interesting show. Yeah. Um, so the stories go back to the Native Americans that lived in the region before the first Europeans came. Um, we know that what is now Lake Champlain, at the end of the last ice age, was flooded and became part of the sea. It was called the Champlain Sea, and there are plenty of fossils that document the fact that there were whales and seals and marine animals living in what is now Lake Champlain. In addition to that, there are now living in the lake types of fishes that were marine fishes that were contemporaries with these whales and seals that have survived the transition to fresh water and are left over from the Champlain Sea. So the idea is that if there is an exotic animal behind the monster reports, it's also a leftover along with these fishes. So the idea of something being able to get in and being left over and adapted to fresh water is plausible. However, we have yet to verify that. So <clears throat> I think the thrust of what we want to do for the future is to try to rectify that by finding some sort of bones, or figuring out a way to get a tissue sample that is harmless to the animal. 
Um, so Will and I first met through Liz Vaughn Muggenthaler, who recorded the echolocation-like clicks at Lake Champlain back in 2003. Um, so the history of sightings is basically at least among settlers in the region has been fairly steady since 1873. There were a few minor things before that, back in the 1600s, 1700s, and early 1800s. But the real steady stream of reports doesn't really start until like 1873 and are reported in the newspapers, and it's been on and off fairly steady in spurts since that time. Um, so, Will, how did you meet Liz initially? Um, basically, it was through the Internet, um, you know, exchanging some ideas on equipment, things like that. Um, you know, some of the the research I was doing um, into the, the Bigfoot creatures after my sighting in 1995 sort of paralleled the same type of research um, that Liz was doing at the lake and others. Um, so it, it just, the lake in the, the lake monster just drew my interest. Um, and I just volunteered to contribute anything that I could in the technology aspect. So uh, that's that's pretty much how we met. And then uh, then Scott, um, we we started conversing back and forth. Um, and, I, you know, through this whole time, I was learning that there was a lot more uh, to the sightings and things like that. Uh, after listening and reading about the stories, the eyewitness accounts, um, and the history of sightings, too, was, was very interesting. Um, so, you know, once you get bitten by the, the cryptozoology bug, things uh, just sort of take, you know, take their own path. And, uh, you know, working on the lake monster stuff, um, I was a boater before, had a boats and things like that. So uh, that was sort of a natural gravitation to me. And, to be attracted to the lake and the, the mystery. And when we met, I was still living in Vermont. <laughs> yes, yes, you were. Yep. Yeah. Wow. And then a series of unfortunate flies. events threw me a curveball. I lost my mm -hmm. job, and lo and behold, I wound up getting married, which <laughs> nobody saw that coming. Um, mm -hmm. But... Um, Liz and I were both on the uh, Monster Quest episode about Champ and I had been trying to get a hold of her for years there was a phone number on a website and I kept trying to call that number and didn't get an email so eventually one day she called me out of the blue and said that her and uh, Will were coming up this would have been uh, late 2008, early 2009, and that's how Will and I met. And um, Liz is very brilliant, but she's very difficult to work with. And there were problems, and eventually this all got straightened out. And like I said, I had my own kind of personal crisis of events 
loss of my job and having to move and all of the real financial crash in like 2011, 2012. So finally, when the dust settled, I got contacted by Mike and Diana Assorti, a couple of cryptozoologists, who had started this thing called the Champ Camp. And they had invited me a couple of times before, and Liz kind of put the kibosh on it. So I was kind of in this awkward position, you know. I didn't want to give up the work I was doing with her on the bioacoustic stuff, so I had to decline. Finally, things straightened out to the point where I said, yeah, it's fine, I can come. And Will was going to be there, so we kind of picked up where we left off with that uh, Champ Camp expedition in 2013. And uh, so, Will, you want to talk about the uh, cameras and all the stuff that we used then and in 2014? Sure. Yeah, most of the, uh, the the start of that um, sort of that reunion there um, – with the Champ Camp, uh, started out pretty basic. Uh, you know, I had developed some underwater cameras, um, also using hydrophone uh, to record audio within the lake itself. Um, so that was sort of the the highlight of the, uh, the the 2013 expedition was to actually deploy these underwater camera systems that I designed and manufactured. Um, we did that just by renting uh, canoes. It was pretty basic back then. Um, we rented canoes um, from Button Bay State Park and actually went out into Button Bay and deployed the uh, the cameras out there. Um, and, again, the cameras were designed to uh, pick up audio uh, from the hydrophone, uh, but also film and record um, up to about a month of audio and video from the onboard wow. cameras. So uh, we deployed those, and uh, it worked out pretty well. Um, we had a number of fish swim by, um, you know, looking at all the uh, the different particulate in the water, uh, it was pretty heavy with algae during that time. Um, but we got some audio, too, mostly motorboats and sounds of bubbles and things like that. Um, there was no sign of echolocation. Um, but we moved those Bruce cameras around a little too. bit. Bruce was Yes, she was. Yes. Yep. Yeah, she was there. And also um, a number of other people that came in for the champ camp, too. So we were all stationed out of Button Bay. Jeff uh, which Muse was a good time. Yep. From the Cryptozoology Museum. And, uh, yeah. I'm trying to remember. I think like there was one more person. I remember Jeff's girlfriend. Yeah. <clears throat> but then, anyway, a year later, we yeah. got together again in the same place. But Will brought a boat, and we had night vision scope, and... Thermal, thermal camera. Yep. Yeah, thermal camera. And we did have some luck with the camera. We got one picture of a fish. Right. Yeah, that was so the... the um, equipment worked. You can see some of the test footage from 2014, from that expedition, in Alexander Petikov's new Champ series, the in search, on the trail of Champ. That was mm -hmm. just released. 
Yeah, that that camera system worked out pretty well, and luckily we had a, a much larger boat that was about a a 26 footer um, at that point. Uh, that was quite a step up from a canoe. Um, so we we were able to uh, basically uh, go around the Button Bay area and uh, certain areas of the lake, um, Split Rock area, things like that. So we we were, we were able to get out and look around a little bit, um, but we were pretty much still confined to the Button Bay area and a few areas outside uh, for the underwater camera systems. Um, the camera systems were fairly basic. Um, they're, it's basically called a silhouette camera system that uh, uses a, a boat mushroom style anchor to anchor itself about um, five feet from the uh, lake bottom um, in about 30 to 40 feet of water. Um, and these cameras are basically time-lapse cameras where it takes a picture every three seconds uh, shuts off um, one hour after sunset, turns back on an hour before sunset. Uh, and these cameras could go up to 30 days in length, um, totally uh, submerged underwater. Um, but the idea is to look up towards the surface all the time. The cameras are pointed up using the, uh, the light-colored sky as a background. And anything that swims above the camera and below the surface of the water will basically look like a silhouette. Uh, sort of like a black and white image with a black silhouette with a white sky behind it. Um, and we got all sorts of things with those cameras. We got uh, shadows of airplanes that were taking off from a grass runway strip um, right outside of Button Bay. Uh, we had um, pictures of kayakers going over, uh, motorboats, things like that. Birds um, flying the, over. Yeah, birds. Um, you know, we did some test runs uh, with the boat also, so we took the boat back and forth. Um, to gauge distance um, from the bottom, what the, what the image looked like, the clarity, that sort of thing. Um, so it worked out pretty well. Uh, those cameras just had, uh, let's see, those were uh, just the uh, video aspect, only the time-lapse video. There was no audio there uh, recording those. Um, it was, we were still, still in the test phase of the underwater camera system. Uh, but they worked very well. Um, we were able, I was able to uh, make those fairly cheaply using standard off-the-parts, um, off-the-shelf parts uh, that could be purchased at Home Depot or Lowe's uh, or local plumbing shops and things like that. Uh, the idea was that if anything broke or needed repair, we could go to a local store um, and actually repair it on site. Um, also, it was much cheaper to produce these things um, instead of having a, you know, order custom machined parts and things like that. Um, it was all plastics and glue, basically, to hold them together. Um, so it was fairly, it's fairly an expensive system as underwater cameras go. Instead of several thousand dollars per camera, um, total cost was about three to $400 per camera. So it was relatively inexpensive. Um, the anchoring system was designed so that the, the camera would um, be sitting a few feet off the bottom, and then we would have a small boat buoy tied to the camera and the anchor. And then... Um, we would bring that uh, boat buoy to the surface. Um, we would actually uh, sort of gauge it so that um, we'd pull the camera system up um, about 10 to 15 feet and then tie the, the uh, rope off onto the buoy. And then we would just um, bless it and let it go overboard. Um, and it would hit the bottom and the boat buoy would be about 10 to 15 feet below the surface of the water. And that allowed us um, to uh, deploy the cameras without any type of um, interference with boaters or fishermen and things like that. So uh, the camera system was operating um, underneath the surface of the water. Uh, the boat buoy 
was um, located 15 feet below the surface of the water um, to stay out of the way of boaters and fishermen and things like that. So that worked out really well. We took the GPS coordinates uh, once we deployed the cameras um, so we knew exactly where they were on the lake. Um, and then to retrieve the cameras, all we do is just go back to that exact GPS location. And um, from the surface, you could see the, uh, the white, the very bright white boat bumper. Um, and we just used an extendable pole, grabbed it, and then pulled it up um, and took out the, uh, the uh, mechanism inside, um, removed the SD card from the, the time-lapse camera itself, and then uh, downloaded the images. Um, and then put the SD card back in and dropped it overboard again and kept taking pictures like that. So it worked out pretty well. I was um, very pleased with the system. Um, no water leaks. Uh, all the systems came back. We didn't lose any. So uh, that's a good day when you pull all your cameras back yeah. out of the water. That's amazing. <laughs> well, they, the um, yeah. retrieve them all. The camera mm -hmm. housings and the basic principle on, on how it works it's very reminiscent of what Bob Rines and the Academy of Applied Sciences were doing with their underwater cameras back in the 70s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they had some pretty good technology back then. They were, they were cutting edge, and it wasn't um, until Scott told me about it that I looked it up that uh, they, were, you, they, were, they devised a similar type system um, back then. So, you know, we were on the same track, same methodology, same thoughts. Um, it's just a matter of getting more of those cameras in the lake and um, putting them in other areas where the champ creatures have been sighted. Um, because really, when you're when you're looking uh, at the lake, when you're out, when you're out on the boat looking at the lake and you're putting one of these camera systems in there, um, you realize just how vast that lake system is. Um, and when you put the camera system in there, you're just you're just looking at a very small uh, percentage of area looking up at the sky um, and to have something come over is going to be a miracle. Um, but at right. least, you know, at least we're trying uh, and we did everything ourselves. We didn't, uh, everything was self-funded on my end with the camera systems. It was totally my design. And, you know, there's, there's no way to go out and purchase underwater camera systems unless you're a millionaire for doing this type of research. Um, right. And that's why we had to develop something cheaply, inexpensive, be able to repair immediately. Um, and if you lose it, it's not going to break the bank. Um, but luckily, right. the system was designed correctly. It operated correctly, and we were able to retrieve all the cameras. But, again, it's a big lake. Um, but uh, we, we're putting a, a lot of money on this because it, it does work. And, you know, we did capture the fish and the, the plain shadows and ducks and kayakers going over. So, you know, we might get lucky, and a plesiosaur could go flying across over the top of the camera system, we get some pictures. That would be the best thing. Um, well, but it's a fun, a fun endeavor, too, designing and manufacturing the camera systems. It was fun and um, quite exciting, actually. So it was a good time. Tell Julie about the Garmin sonar system. Yeah, the, you know, once, you're, once you get some of the images back from the underwater cameras, you know, we're looking from basically the bottom up towards the surface. Um, there's a lot of fish finders out there that are fairly inexpensive um, that uh, just look down from the boat and they, they ping off the fish and submerged objects and things like that. Um, it wasn't until about uh, just two years ago when um, some of the uh, sonars, the down view sonar and side view sonar systems uh, became 
fairly inexpensive. When I'm saying fairly inexpensive, um, a basic system costs about $6,000 um, for a really good good underwater sonar system uh, for boating. And, um, oh, Lord. Yeah, so I saw that, um, and I That's did some little, investigation. Yeah. It's not, it's and, not uh, cheap to just go do these things, you know, and that's why critics yeah. of this type of research, you know, they, they really don't know the complete ins and outs of what it takes to to do something on the scale that you guys did. Right. So, uh, so yeah, so we, I investigated the underwater sonar systems. Garmin had a real nice one. Um, again, it was expensive. It was about a little bit over six grand. Um, but you know what? It was like... I was working a decent job at the time, um, had some money saved up uh, just for this type of application, and I bit the bullet and said, you know, to progress this research further, definitely have to go with this system. Um, so I purchased the system and uh, installed it on my boat, uh, the 30-footer that I had, um, and uh, we brought it up to the lake, and uh, as fate would have it, first time we got out there, um, bang, we got something uh, from uh, the area near uh, the Baudette footage. Uh, we basically went out there quickly uh, that afternoon and um, parked it, dropped the anchor, and next thing you know, we're getting this uh, these series of images that came through on the sonar, and uh, we were sort of caught off guard because it happened so quickly, but um, the sonar system itself could uh, detect, um, pretty much give you a a photo, almost a photorealistic image of the boat's bottom and of the side, also um, up to about 1,200 feet. So, so this uh, system was really great, uh, high detail, um, and very, very accurate. There was no doubt about that whatsoever. Um, you could see uh, pieces of um, submerged objects, uh, sticks, branches, logs, things like that, fairly clearly. Um, so you have a really good rendition of or rendering of what's going on at the bottom. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a great system, and, and it works wonderfully. Um, but, again, it's a huge lake, and you have to go back and forth and do a whole scan, and that's almost impossible. But um, just to gauge the, the traffic on the lake at the time, it was, um, I think it was 4th of July evening we were over there. Yeah, that's the day, because we yep. were watching the fireworks that night. As they right. were yeah, that was, yeah, that was pretty neat because we were sort of um, uh, and we close could to the see them all the around the rim of the lake over on the Vermont yeah. side. I mean, there's just massive yeah. fireworks going off everywhere. Yeah, the shoreline was lighting up uh, with fireworks, so that was an amazing sight. Um, yeah. But I was remembering the pictures of the day we took on the boat too when we arrived at Button Bay, and um, one thing that that just struck me was there was no traffic out there. There was no other boats. Well, this um, wouldn't have been Button Bay. This was over at the mouth of the Off Sable River. Oh, yes. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Which is way up um, further north. Right, near the the Bodette footage area. Yeah, um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, but that whole area is beautiful. But uh, there was no traffic. There was no boat traffic whatsoever. And it just proves that that lake is just huge uh, because there was – there's supposed to be a lot of people out there in the water July 4th and, you know, certain mm-hmm. areas there were, but when you get into the open remote areas um, of the lake, um, it's just, it's nobody there. Um, so I could see that these creatures could survive um, and go above the surface and in areas of lakes mm-hmm. that are, that are quiet and there's just nobody there to observe them. I, I think these things yeah. 
are, are there all the time, and it's just that there's nobody on the lake to do the the research that's needed um, full time uh, out there. But uh, you know, it's just one of those things where if you're not on the lake doing the research, then you know you might as well just stay home because that's where I think the uh, the research is is going now. It's going to be on the lake and also with submersible autonomous recording systems, sonar systems, um, audio recording with hydrophone. Um, but the, uh, the sonar system, yeah, it was, it was great. It was like going from uh, first-generation night vision to um, high-advanced solar or high-advanced uh, thermal imaging. Um, with the sonar, you see everything below, and it's just amazing. It's totally amazing. It gives you the, uh, the scale factor so you can actually um, determine um, length, and width of uh, submerged objects and things like that. So uh, great system. I still have it. Um, it'll be going on another boat that I'll be purchasing uh, before September of this year. <clears throat> um, so I, I kept that boat off, or I kept the uh, sonar system um, out of the sale of the uh, the boat that I had, uh, the Explorer. Um, I had to sell that one because it was just too big. Um, it was a great boat for Lake Champlain and everything, but uh, it was just too large for towing. Um, and maneuvering around traffic, uh, you needed uh, special permits to tow it. Um, yeah. Had an ex extra wide um, uh, trailer with it too, so it was just a pain to get it from A to B. And when you're talking tra trailering a uh, about a 10,000 pound boat from Virginia to Lake Champlain, going through that wow. New York area, it was just a mess. And um, your axle you broke too. Yeah, oh, it did. Uh, All the way up. Uh, yeah, we had a um, an axle uh, break on us, the, the bearing blew out. Um, so that took a, a couple days to get repaired. And that was just like a couple days before the 4th of July when everybody was winding down their businesses to have a really nice weekend, uh, 4th yeah. of July weekend. So I was lucky to um, to make some phone calls and uh, get the right people up there because they had to actually, um, the boat was just too large to put on a flatbed and tow. Um, and then the shifter broke down too while we were there trying yeah, to go we had out this, on the boat on the lake. Yeah, yeah, we put the boat in the water, and uh, that was actually when we had the um, the gentleman that owned the underwater speaker company, the underwater uh, um, speakers that he designed and built for the Navy. He was up there. We were going to do some experimentation with his speakers underwater too. And his mm. daughter was a diver, and uh, we all got in the boat and. There was no uh, there was no um, steering on the boat at all, so you know there was no way we could take that out onto the uh, the lake. So we had a, a series of mechanical problems that plagued us initially. Uh, yeah. Once we got over those and got those repaired, again costing tons of money. Um, wow. You know we finally got back out onto the lake, and then we had a uh, they had some high winds for a few days um, or a couple days, so uh, yeah. that kept us. Um, in the harbor for a while too, because uh, nobody was going out. There, there was just nobody going out onto the lake. It was just too dangerous. Um, so when, once you overcome uh, mechanical problems and then um, weather problems, it was clear sailing. That's all I gotta say. We got to that lake and uh, put the pedal to the metal, and we were able to zoom around and uh, hit some of the hot spots. Um, and then instead of bringing the uh, boat up the lake. Um, we just ended up bringing it back to the marina, put it on the trailer, and towed it. We went north up towards Burlington, uh, put the water, put the boat back in the water there, um, 
and spent some nights on the boat up there. So uh, it's nice having the boat. Having a larger boat is great, but uh, you got a lot of problems that go along with it. Um, but, you know, we wouldn't trade that for anything. Some of the results we got back from the sonar uh, were totally amazing. Um, we also got some uh, clicks on the hydrophones, too, very faint, but they were there. Yeah. Yeah, that night uh, we were um, by the Baudet, the Baudet footage area. Uh, we spent a lot of time up there, and um, we had the the hydrophone in the water um, quite often up there and recording all the time. And we yeah. did get some uh, some of those faint clicks, which were very interesting. They um, sounded very much like the ones Liz recorded, too. So Right. That might be yeah, then uh, This is in the documentary that Alex just did, too. Yep. Yeah. And there was some other interesting audio. Um, we haven't released it yet, but it's um it almost like sounds like a a, a cow chewing grass, you know, it's it's a chomping mm-hmm. sound that that I still can't understand um because it would come and go and it was like somebody out there, you know, just just eating grass and chewing on grass and it was just a chomp 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 sound um and a grinding sound and um not sure exactly what that was, but uh, we we do need to investigate that further because it happened uh, several times uh, between midnight and about 3 a.m. Um, that morning, that first time we were there. Um, yeah, then we the had another system. crisis. We found out the boat was not anchored. We <laughs> yeah, thought it was, anchor, and we yeah. drifted. Oh, yeah. man, I've been there. Yeah, we had... The boat anchor was, it was a good size for that boat, but we had some really high winds um, coming offshore. And it, basically, um, we were getting ready to to go to sleep. And um, I checked the uh, the depth again and the sonar. And um, damned if we weren't, uh, shoot, maybe a half mile or so uh, from where we were originally. And we just basically dragged the anchor because of the winds, and the anchor wasn't enough to hold the boat, but it dragged us out about a half mile or so, three-quarters of a mile out to the deep areas. So mm-hmm. really the um, the anchor was just hanging off the boat like a giant fish hook. Um, <laughs> so we ended up going back in, and then uh, that whole morning I just um, I dropped anchor again. But, you know, I was just fearful of the boat drifting out, one, because it was night, and two, we were near the um, – uh, the crossing area for the ferry in that same area has some underwater cables um, that go across yeah. the lake. Part so, of the uh, problem is that that particular area over there has real sandy bottom, mm-hmm. which I think created a problem for the anchor to get a good hold on. Yep. You know, different parts of the lake have different kind of bottom, but that particular area over there near the Al Sable River has real sandy soil, so probably yeah. had a hard time getting a hold on the anchor. Yep. Yeah, and the whole that whole area through there, it it does um, the depth increases rather quickly, so it is sandy, and also the depth um, just gets deeper uh, real quick. So, you know, once you got we were, once you have the high winds. When we got the sonar blob, we were anchored in 48 feet of water. Yep. And the general area is between two buoys, and it's thought that that is the general area where Bodette and his father-in-law were fishing when they got the video. So that's why we purposely anchored in that area. And lo and behold, mm-hmm. 
here's this thing on the sonar, uh, you know, just pops up out of the blue, and it's vaguely plesiosaur-shaped. You see a big blobby body with this neck-like appendage coming off of it, and there's a hint of two little horn-like objects on what could be interpreted as the head. And if you go back and look at the Indian mythology for these creatures, they're commonly referred to as the Great Horned Serpent. And also there are a few isolated reports from Loch Ness and and a few from Lake Champlain, too, where people describe these snorkel or horn-like objects. Maybe they're snorkels over the nostrils. We just don't know yet. But anyway, they they are sometimes reported. So um, maybe that's significant. You don't mm-hmm. see anything that looks like a long tail or flippers, but we're you're looking at it from the side, and there is an image of looking at it on the down view, and you don't see any flippers either. But it's possible that they may have been moving so fast that they they weren't still long enough to register on the sonar. That mm-hmm. can happen. <clears throat> so what are you saying? That there's more than one type of sea creature, possibly, at Lake Champlain? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think if there is a, quote, exotic animal, monster, whatever you want to call it, there's one type. And okay. there's got to be more than one of them. However... Mm-hmm. They may be in the process of dying out. We don't know. There could be three of them. Who knows? There have been reports of so-called baby monsters, but it's possible that these could be misidentifications of stamping turtles and otters and that sort of thing, but not necessarily. So um, the idea is that they're most likely if they exist, would be a breeding population that's been isolated since the time of the Champlain Sea, and it's managed to squeak through. You know, there's been speculation that something could come and go from the ocean, but if you look at all the the dams and canals on the rivers that connect Lake Champlain to the ocean, you realize how problematic that is. Back in the 1800s, seals used to get in occasionally from the Gulf of St. Lawrence, swimming down the Richelieu River and coming in, but seals are amphibious and they can get out and crawl around obstructions. And I think it was 2013, a seal tried to get in through the Hudson River, through the the Champlain Canal, but they found it and prevented it from getting in, so... My my point being is that if you had unusual-looking large animals trying to get in and out all the time, they would be very conspicuous. Additionally, up on the Richley River, where one of the dams is, there's actually two dams, there is a change in elevation of 16 feet. In other words... Anything trying to get back out of Lake Champlain would have to jump 16 feet in the air over this dam to get out, unless it could get out on land and crawl around. So, you know, 
Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's not impossible, but it's very problematic. So I'm inclined to think the most logical answer is that these things are in the lake all the time, and they stay down in the deep water most of the time, or we'd know about them for sure, as elusive as they are. So, Will, you want to tell about your... Sasquatch encounter, that's what started your whole cryptozoology thing, right? Sure, yeah. yeah, yeah go re- ahead and real quick, though, I, I will. Um, one thing I'd like to uh, reinforce is that there is a, a breeding population of these creatures up there in Lake Champlain. It's just not one um, that survived all these years. There's definitely a breeding population up there. Um, but uh, what got me into this, this all this crypto stuff uh, was a Bigfoot sighting back in 1995 in a little town called Richardsville in Virginia. Um, at, the t- at the time, uh, back in 1990, I started a pretty cool job. It was working for, um, for different government agencies. We did a lot of uh, sort of classified work on projects. And during that time frame, uh, the 1995 time frame, um, we were working on under an FBI contract and some of the uh, – agents that I knew. Um, actually, one of them um, lived in the same town that I lived in, and we, we struck up a friendship. And uh, also, um, he was a metal detector, and I, at the time, metal detectorist. And then uh, at the same time, I was getting into metal detecting. Um, so we were looking for places to go, and uh, one of the other agents um, actually owned some land down near Richardsville, Virginia, um, which is a pretty remote area um, in the lands. It's called the Forks of the Rapidan. It's between the Rappahannock and the Rapidan River down there just before they meet in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Um, and he owned some property there, but he also had access to uh, thousands of acres across the street from him that was owned by a pulpwood company. And just so happened that that same area um, – was the biggest producer of gold prior to the gold rush in California. Um, Virginia, I, I never really knew that prior, but uh, Virginia was the biggest producer of gold prior to the gold rush. Um, and when the gold rush hit out in California, everybody dropped everything and headed west for the, you know, they said everybody was tripping over uh, gold nuggets and things out there. So instead of digging and working for it here, they all took off. Uh, there's been some other mining since then in that area, but, but very little. Uh, but it's full of uh, it's part of a golden pyrite belt that goes from uh, Great Falls, uh, Maryland, across the Potomac River and all the way down to uh, Southwest Virginia, um, and it's a just a great uh, pyrite, or, uh, actually a quartz vein uh, and quartz uh, that go all the way down through the center of the state. But the uh, the best place for gold is um, in a little town called Gold Gold Vein, Virginia, which is right next to Richardsville. So. We just decided to spend the day going around looking for uh, anything that could have been left over um, in the gold mining process because he did process the gold gold on site, too. Instead of hauling all the ore off, they actually brought the foundries and things to the the gold sites themselves. So they were processing the gold on site. Um, So we figured we'd find something. Um, We did find a lot of slag left over from the mining process and the smelting process. and uh, a lot of tools, shovels, uh, gears and things they, they use for cranes, um, that sort of thing. Um, but we didn't find any gold, which was unfortunate. 
Um, we did find some pyrite and things like that, uh, but no gold. Um, so on the way back, um, we were heading back on a logging road, and it was a hard-packed logging road. And um, it was the two agents in front of me, and they were talking, and I was about five or six feet behind, still using the metal detector, uh, looking for anything along the, the logging road itself. Um, and that's when one of the agents dropped his metal detector on the ground, stuck out his arms from the side straight out, and basically said stop. And then he pointed down to the woods, and he said, um, and he used his left hand as a sort of a guide and a pointer, and he said, from my shoulder to the tip of my finger, 75 feet in behind that tree is a man. And uh, both agents drew their sidearms um, and sort of pushed me back a little bit to make sure that, that I wasn't in the way, um, in the line of sight. With the firearms and um, so I'm looking at this tree where uh, supposedly this person was and I'm looking for where uh, maybe a head would be and next thing you know a large black shape appeared from around the tree um, looked at us and then pulled itself back real quick and at that point I said Jesus Christ you know because what the hell is that because it's not normal um, I was a person it was another couple feet taller um, and then about three seconds later, this thing started running from our left to right. Um, I went into um, tunnel vision, which is a form of shock. Um, and I was basically focused from the shoulders about down to the thigh area um, visually. And it was a circle. It was a, it was a tunnel I was looking through, dark around the edges. And uh, it was just like looking through a periscope or uh, binoculars or something. But um, as the creature started running from our left to right, uh, my vision opened up and it cleared up and I was able to see the arms moving, the hair on the arms, um, the head, uh, shoulders, thigh, legs, feet, everything. Um, and this thing was running very fast. It was actually the other agent um, later on, we discussed it, <coughs> and he called it a loping run. Um, I called it a sprint because it was, it was running so fast it was like a sprinter. Um, but yet, it was sort of slow motion, and um, but it, but basically it covered a lot of ground in a little bit of time, and its movements were fluid. Um, there was no jerkiness to it. Um, it definitely was not a man in a suit. It was definitely not a bear. Um, we went back and measured the tree where it appeared from. Um, it was the agent said uh, right about seven feet tall. Um, and as it ran from our left to right, you could see just the fluid movements of the body. You could see the muscles bulging. Um, and then it pivoted off of a tree, which was weird because it took a hard left turn. Um, we didn't know it pivoted off of a, a tree base until later on. Um, but it took a hard left turn, started going down an embankment. And from there, we could see the shoulders that were four feet wide. No, no doubt about that whatsoever. And there was some gray... Um, patterning on the back where it was gray hair um it was sort of scattered and feathered a little bit um and then the creature just bounded down the hill and disappeared um one of the agents was definitely in shock he his he was sweating his eyes were red um the other agent uh sort of bumped me a little bit and, and he looked down at the other agent's handgun um and the agent then said you know it's a bear let's get out of here and from what I saw, his finger was still on the trigger. His hands were trembling. And uh, that's when the agent pushed me back again. And I could tell he's, he, was, he was being the middleman. He wanted uh, to put himself between me and the other agent because the other agent uh, still had his finger on the trigger as we were walking away. 
um, which is a no-no. Basically, you don't you don't put your finger on the trigger until you're ready to shoot. Um, Why were so we they reacting out. that way? Was it public land? Could anybody have gone down down there looking for stuff? Or no, it was, it was had private to get permission. Land. Ah, okay. It was permission. So, yeah, it was permission. It was. It so was that's why they reacted that way when they they thought they saw another person. Yeah, yeah, yep. All and right. um, he called it a person, uh, but later on the agent um, said, you know, when he said I saw it three seconds before it saw me, <clears> and <throat> he said when that thing looked up at him, he said the expression on both of our faces was oh shit. So, um, how how much resemblance <laughs> did what you saw bear to the thing in the Patterson film? The the one in the Patterson film um, seemed a little more bulky, um, sort of slower moving. Uh, the one we saw definitely looked like a, a sort of a younger male, um, very very muscular. There wasn't an ounce of fat on that body. Um, more like a football player with, with padding and things like that. But uh, this was, you know, we were looking at the skin, the muscles underneath. There was no padding whatsoever. This was a living, breathing animal, and it had intelligence. Um, one thing that the uh, the FBI agent noticed later on, we talked about it, was that uh, he said that the intelligence was very high because when he saw it, it looked at him, he was looking at it. It moved a few feet forward to hide behind some trees, and then there was about a three-second time frame to when it peeked out and looked at us. And uh, he told the agent told me, he said, the decision of that subject to run in front of us was purpose, purposely done uh, to draw our attention away to what could have been behind it. And I thought about it, and he was correct. Many of the other sightings, um, Bigfoot sightings and things, um, the creature turns around and walks away, but this thing decided to put itself in jeopardy. It drew our attention from our, our left totally 180 degrees as it ran in front of us and drew our attention to it 180 degrees away to our right. And um, the agent thinks, and it was about a 12-second sighting, and the agent thinks that uh, the reason for this was to allow time for maybe a mate um, or a family unit behind it to hide um, so it put itself in jeopardy, and when it did, it, you know, these guys could have shot it at any time, but they didn't. They said if it appeared to come towards us, then, you know, then there could have been a possible shot. But uh, they said this thing did not present any type of aggression whatsoever. It did provide um, the feeling of high intelligence um, wow. by sort of outwitting them instead of just turning around and running away. It put itself in jeopardy and went right in front of us and drew our attention away. Um, but we ended up um, leaving the woods, and all the way back, it was it was definitely quiet. Nobody said a word. Um, the agents kept looking behind um, every once in a while. Um, the gentleman in front, eventually we got to his house, and we said, you know, thank you for letting us go out metal detecting. He didn't, he didn't say a word didn't say goodbye. He just walked up his steps and closed the door as he went into his home. Um, we went down the road about a, about a half mile or so, and the agent pulled over, and he said, uh, I don't know about you, but this is as far as it goes with me. You know, I'm, I'm working for the Bureau. Um, I need my job. If mm. you say anything about this, I'll deny it. Um, and that was it. 
I was like, wow, this this is mm. quite an exciting afternoon. Um, <laughs> and it wasn't yeah. the daytime. It was about one thirty. So it was uh, daylight. Amazing. It was early March. Um, the trees haven't budded out yet, and the, there's no leaves. Uh, so it was a clear view from 75 feet away. Um, but okay. later on, um, maybe 10 years later, um, Daniel Perez, he runs the newsletter Bigfoot Times, he had called me and said, uh, he had interviewed me before about the sighting, and he said he would really like to get one of the, one of the agents, at least one of the agents, um, on record about the sighting. And I said, well, you know, I'm not sure about that. They, they don't want to talk about it. So um, he said, well, let's try. So I did call uh, one of the agent up that I knew um, that was in total control of the situation down there during the sighting. Uh, I asked him, and he had since retired from the FBI. And uh, I asked him if it was okay if Daniel could call him and do an interview. And there was about 10 seconds of silence, and I thought, oh, boy, I, I struck a nerve here. And he said, he said, okay, but this will be my first and my last interview. And so um, I told Daniel to give him a call right away uh, to get the interview done, and um, the agent, uh, true to his word, gave the interview. And um, everything was exactly the way that I described it, except for the run, which the agent called a loping run, but it did cover a lot of distance in a short time, um, as compared to my description of a sprinting running creature. Um, and again, accomplishing, uh, you know, getting a lot of uh, speed and distance um, as it ran in front of us. Um, but uh, then Daniel Perez said, uh, you guys saw a Bigfoot creature, you know, after he talked to the agent. And I said, yeah, I've been telling you all these years. But he says, now we have two. So it's it's two witnesses that have verified this. Um, and he thought that was a, a, a great deal with the sighting when you have two witnesses collaborating together. And they saw the same thing, especially in the type of business um, that I was in and the agent's um, career, because um, he did three tours of Vietnam as a point man. Um, so he had the eyes for this. You know, he was able to see this creature movement um, in his peripheral vision about three seconds before the creature saw him. So um, same thing. Once you see something that that is supposed to be some type of mystery or one of a kind, um, when you see it in the flesh, it just flipped your world around 180 degrees. Jeez. And uh, it was that, you know, I just bought that metal detector too. That was a $750 metal detector in 1995. And I threw that thing in the back of the garage. And next thing you know, I'm designing camera systems to try to catch these creatures on film uh, because I was doing that same type of work on my, in my day job. And um, it really dovetailed and paralleled um, the Bigfoot research, paralleled the work I was doing at work. Um, with the surveillance techniques and methodologies and things like that, I figured, Jesus, if I could, you know, I'm doing this at work to catch bad guys, I should be able to do this, you know, on the side and be able to get these creatures on film. Um, but years later and, and many uh, revisions on camera systems, it, we just didn't get anything. It was the weirdest thing. Mm -hmm. that you could spend that much time in the woods. You could develop camera systems that don't make any sounds because we I did um, – discover that cameras produce ultrasonic sounds. Um, and I was able to document that um, and then defeat that so that the cameras did not produce any sounds whatsoever. Um, so they were, they were very quiet in the woods. They were also buried below ground in pelican cases. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, 
to limit the smells of the plastic um, and had armored cables coming up out of the ground um, into trees where the cameras were, had infrared, passive infrared systems um, in the target area so they would be looking for heat and movement. Those would, um, once activated, send a wireless signal uh, below ground into the uh, the Pelican case where the command and control system was. It would turn on the system for one minute, record to an SD card, and then go back to sleep to preserve battery power. Um, and those would go for at least a month at a time, um, and then we'd go change batteries and SD cards out. Um, had some interesting um, things happen. Um, sticks being thrown into the field of view from behind the camera. Um, we also had a lot of birds and deer. Uh, the deer would actually walk up to within 20 feet of the camera and their eyes would move back, and, or not their eyes, their ears would move back and forth. Um, and it was at that point that I realized they were trying to zero in on a sound. And that sound was the camera. And the camera was producing um, ultrasonic sounds that uh, humans can hear, but animals can. Um, so I bought some equipment to uh, detect that. Um, and learn about the frequencies that the cameras emitted and actually trace the um, sounds down use, onto the circuit board using a probe tip that came with the ultrasonic um, transducer. And um, we were able to find the, uh, the actual chips on the circuit board that produced the ultrasonic sounds. Um, so we were able to uh, basically hide, hide those sounds and uh, develop camera systems that I call the I gotcha um, that uh, Basically, we're, we're soundproof. They didn't make any ultrasonic sounds whatsoever. I was able to test it. Um, and, uh, but still, even after all that time and effort and money developing those systems, um, I could still never on film. But it didn't matter because the, the 12 seconds that I had was enough for me to prove that these creatures do, in fact, exist. Um, after that time, I ended up... Uh, had a pickup truck and I was taking some of the camera systems I developed and leaving them on people's property. I developed it so that the images and the video um, could be seen inside the home at night, had night vision equipment. So uh, the people would stay up at night and just watch the monitors and expect to see these big creatures come walking by. Um, and when uh, I only had a limited number of those camera systems because it's expense, um, but when I had another area that was um, well, uh, your phone signal is breaking up. Okay. Let me move around a little bit. Yeah, that sounds um, better. Yeah. Okay. One of the uh, the problems was the people didn't want to give up the camera systems that I lent them um, when another uh, sighting occurred. So um, I'd go down there to get them, and they said, oh, you know, they weren't home, and basically it was uh, they had an emergency somewhere. So the camera systems oh. stayed at their homes. So. Eventually, I ended up buying a, um, a used mobile veterinary clinic. Um, it was like a 28-foot, uh, sort of like a motorhome, uh, but it was for, for veterinary work. And um, I converted that into a, like a little mini-museum, early museum, but also a laboratory and a surveillance lab. And um, so I said, well, damn it, I'm going to put all the equipment in one vehicle so I could take it home with me when I'm done. Um, so then I would go to the people's homes or their uh, farms and things like that and set up the cameras and have remote cameras in the woods transmitting the video and audio uh, back to the uh, the camper. Um, and I could record it there on site. So uh, I was able to deploy cameras outside of the 
the general local area there and um, still retrieve the video and audio and record it. So uh, that worked out real well. Also had thermal cameras in the woods doing the same thing. Transmitters would transmit the images, uh, the video back to the RV uh, where I'd monitor it and record it. Um, also had a thermal camera that was on a 30-foot mast that would uh, crank up from inside the vehicle. Um, the thermal camera was mounted on the top, so I had a bird's eye view of everything. Um, and I was able to uh, rotate that 360 degrees and had zoom zoom features also. Um, and I figured that uh, I'd get something. You know, after all this time and effort, you'd think it would pay off. Um, but over time, over a four-and-a-half-year time frame, um, I never never got anything. And that was spending hundreds of hours out in the woods, wow. uh, that sort of thing. That's um, got to be frustrating. Well, it is. It is. Really. Tell, the, tell um, the horror story of what happened in 2015 when you were supposed to be coming up to the lake to meet me at the Walmart. Uh, Remember that? Uh, where they broke into the truck? Oh, oh, that was that was uh, yeah, that was um, Lowe's and stuff. Um, it was between Lowe's and Best Buy. It wasn't oh, Walmart. Okay, I thought um, it was Walmart. Yeah, that was 2015. So, so over the years with the Bigfoot stuff, I I was able to accumulate some really high tech gear, uh, night vision, thermal, uh, computer systems, um, all, all kinds of crazy, crazy stuff. Um, and uh, it was the uh, yeah the night before going up to meet Scott, um, I had to go to Best Buy uh, to purchase a um, like basically like an iPad. Um, and some other items, and also going over to uh, uh, Lowe's to get some some other things too for the trip. Um, so I had packed up the. Uh, I was using a friend's truck. It was a, a GMC uh, 3500 dually to tow the boat up there. And um, so I parked the truck between the Best Buy and the Lowe's, and this is down in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And um, locked it up and everything. Of course, it was full of all the gear. All the expensive gear was in the truck. Figured that, you know, it would be safe there. Uh, went into Best Buy, got the iPad and everything, brought it back to the truck, uh, locked it back up, went, in the, went into Lowe's for about 15 minutes, um, came back out, and I noticed a couple of the, uh, the mounting clips for the GoPro systems that I had on the, on the ground right outside the truck. And I thought, Jesus, those must have fallen out when I, when I got out. Um, and then I looked at the truck, and I noticed that the, uh, the key lock um, entryway was pulled out um, and it was, you know, right then I went, what the hell, you know? And so I opened the door and all the stuff was gone. Um, everything oh. totally wiped out. I uh, immediately called police. They uh, went into Best Buy and Lowe's. They got the video footage. Um, and they also checked the cash register, uh, receipt, um, and the timing on the cameras. And they said, when I was, um, checking out in line, that guy was getting back into his car, his truck. Wow. Um, and he said that there was a possibility that if you confronted this guy, he would have shot you. Because they seem to have known the, uh, the, the truck itself. It was like an SUV. Um, so the way he did, I pulled in forward. He backed in on the driver's side of my truck and opened his door so that it would block um, anyone walking by from seeing really what was going on. <clears throat> so he's done it before. The cops sort of knew that. Um, they said, basically, you know, we'll keep an eye open for the stuff. 
Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's definitely, there's different groups that ride up and down 95. They, they come down from New York or Richmond or Dope parts money. down south, and they drive up, they break mm-hmm. in, they get back on the highway, and they're gone, and you never see them. Um, well, I, that's good to know. Yeah, so yeah. there's a horrible, yeah. horrible story. Let me ask you, getting back to the original um, sighting, I, I had a couple questions for you about the subject that you that you saw. Um, I was always curious about people's description of the face. Um, mm-hmm. Did you get a pretty good look at the face? And if you did, was, did it look more ape-like or more human? Well, the the brief moment I had when I saw it peer around the tree, it looked more human than ape. Mm. Um, but as it ran from our left to right, and I was able to zoom out of that tunnel vision, um, right. it looked it looked more human too. It was just a large, muscular human with lots of hair, uh, huge muscles. Um, so to me, it was a large human with a very um, uh, I guess you would say uh, high sense of intelligence, you know, by looking and peering and around the tree and backing up. And then three seconds later, just three seconds to decide to run in front of us like that. Um, and then pivoting off a tree. What we, we went back down a couple of days later and we saw the tree that it, where, where it turned because I saw this thing turn and I said, that's impossible for something that big and that large moving so quickly to turn so quickly. It was just like it bounced off of something and took off running downhill. Um, the agent was in down in the woods at that point. I was up on the, the hard pack logging road looking at distances, and then where it turned, um, that's when he waved to me to come down. And uh, we saw the like a six- to eight-inch pine tree um, where the bark had just been just pushed down. Um, uh. And the, the tree was actually oozing sap from that area, but it was about a foot wow. high. And it, pushed the bark down and almost accordioned it down to the ground, and then it pushed away from the tree and fell on the ground behind it. Um, but it looks like it used that tree to turn and pivot off of. So, you know, when you're thinking intelligence of this thing being spotted, deciding to divert our attention possibly from our left to right, running in front of us, and then having the wherewithal to, to pivot off of a pine tree and take a quick left turn, um, you know, the intelligence in that creature's mind, that subject's mind, just blew me away. That this, is, this thing was in total control of that whole sighting. Um, the only part that the agent um, was able to have a, a, a one-up on the creature was when he saw it first. The agent said he saw it move in his peripheral vision. He saw it for three seconds before it saw him. That's when he said the expression on both of our faces is, oh, shit. Um, and then oh it ducked behind the tree. So high intelligence was there. And, yeah. um, and, you know, I can't wait for Daniel to, to uh, publish that, um, that interview with the agent. I haven't even heard or, or seen anything from Daniel on the, uh, the actual interview itself. I'm hoping that that does come out fairly soon. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was very, very interesting. I'm glad the agent um, stepped up to the plate and was able to uh, sort of record that little time in history that we had. Uh, to verify my story. Yeah. Now, was the hair on this creature, was it short all the way around, or was there longer hair on the arms versus the head? Um, I mean, what? 
I, I would what did have it to, look like? Well, the agent, um, I saw it flowing in the breeze, basically, on, through the arms and the thighs and the legs. Um, the agent described it as being like car wash bristle, bristles, about three mm. to four inches long. Um, and that's how it sort of flowed off the body. Um, again, I'd like to hear the, uh, see the transcript of the phone call um, and how the agent described it. But initially, three to four inches long and flowing like a car wash brush, where as it ran forward, it sort of just blew back. Um, my, From what I remember from the sighting, um, I remember that there was hair there. It was fairly long. I'd say probably that three to four inches is about right. Um, but I did see some dark-colored skin behind it. Um, it wasn't just totally uh, hair-covered. It was areas that were that I could see that had skin behind it. And as it ran, that skin was, was evident. Um, You're describing grayish-looking hairs on the back. Sounds like a silverback gorilla. Yeah, yeah I did, I did find a, too, a book know? on eBay. Yeah, I did find a book on eBay about... Um, uh, it's called Primate Patterning. It was back in the 30s that it was written. Um, I think it was for the Smithsonian, but it went through all the different types of um, primate patterning where the gray hairs would come in, and a lot of it starts in the back area and then goes through some of the uh, the rest of the body as the creatures, the primates, get older. Did um, it did it have a, a sagittal crest, kind of a conish-looking... Very, head, very little. Yeah, head. it wasn't a round head like a, it was. It was like a human, but the head had a little bit of a crest, but not much at all. Um, what what but about just the a nose? Bit. Did it protrude out, uh, or was it flat, or could you tell? I didn't get a good look at that. Um, I'd have to think maybe the agent had a better description of that. And again, once once we pulled over on the way back from that sighting, um, when the agent said, "You know, I'm out of it." You know, I got my job to protect and the family and everything else. Um, you know, I'll deny anything. So at that point, um, you know, in, in a reasonable time after, we, we never had a lot of discussions or anything else about it. So um, he did go back with me one other time because I wanted to go look. It was just a couple of days later. Um, I talked to the agent about it, and I said, you know, I'm going back in to take a look at that area. And um, reluctantly, he said, well, Jesus, you know, I'm going to have to go with you because i got to offer some type of protection uh, if you're going down there alone. And I was ready to do it alone. Uh, and this so he is did the same guy that Daniel Perez interviewed. Correct, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. So well, that would be a talk. great uh, article. We should talk about Amazing. your viewing of the Bodette video. Yeah, unless Julie had any other questions about the, the Bigfoot sighting. Uh, well, there was one other thing. I I talked to a lot of people who have seen them um, in motion, and one thing I, I hear a lot about is that they say it looks like they were actually gliding, not running. Did that ring yes. true with you at all? Yes, it did. To me, I guess, to me it was it was running, but the fluid motion of the body was amazing. Um, it seemed very natural in its environment. Uh, the arms, the legs, the body moved together in a synchronicity that it was like almost swimming through the air. It was just wow. like just 
floating, running, swimming. There was no mm-hmm. jerking I've heard movements that before. or anything like that. So um, like gliding, do you mean do you mean something along mm-hmm. the lines of a of a a moonwalk, but in a forward in a forward uh, direction? I guess kind of sliding at feet. No, it wasn't. It wasn't sliding. It was running like a person, but just the just the body movements alone, um, almost like hypnotized you to a point where it was just oh, like, yeah. that's God, this thing is effort. There was no effort whatsoever for this thing to cover so much ground in such little time. Hey. And, and maybe the, agent the, did the maybe the difference in the the anatomy of the feet, you know, the mid tarsal thing might have something to do with the way it moves different yeah, from the human. Yeah, who, I, don't yeah, know. I, don't know, I don't Yeah, I don't know about the, that whole mid-tarsal thing. It sounds sort of interesting. Um, I'm not 100% sold on it yet, but uh, um, until there's we get a specimen, I don't think we could prove that 100%, um, even though there is some evidence out there. But, um, but the agent, you know, said that this thing uh, was quiet, didn't make any sound. At the time, wow. I don't even know if I heard anything. Uh, but he it's said, amazing. through his observations, he said this thing didn't make any sound whatsoever. So, uh, yeah, it just glided through those woods like it was nothing, you know, like it was nothing. That's amazing. But, uh, I'm glad they yeah, through the woods think, a lot more than we do, so that probably uh, gives them an advantage. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and I definitely. Did, later on, I did find other footprints, um, some that were five, in, five inches long um, in the mud. So there are some smaller ones there. Um, and what was interesting was that, uh, geez, this was in 95, and just about three years ago, Daniel Perez asked me if I could go back and take some pictures of the location, um, showing the tree and things like that uh, where it, it stepped off of. Um, and so I, I I said, all right, you know, it's like an hour drive from where I was living, and, and then in like another almost 40 minute hike through the woods. So, um, I, I brought my motorcycle down there at the time and parked it, um, on the side of the road because of all the gates that were there. And, um, so I started walking down there and, um, I'm walking across through the woods, going through some beaver, buy some beaver ponds and things like that. Um, and I get into the area where there's a, um, some underground pipelines there. So I had about a, a 50 foot space, um, that was it was mowed and everything for the pipelines. And as soon as I stepped into that area, um, quads came from uh, above the hill. There was, I think, two to three quads uh, with people on them came down from the hill um, that was about 300 yards um, to my right. And these guys came flying down that hill um, through the, uh, the pipeline area. And um, I was just totally amazed. I'm like, what the hell is this? And I thought they were just guys messing around. Um, but it comes down to the point where they they asked me who I was, what I was doing there. Um, I told them that, you know, I had permission. I still had uh, the permission slip um, from the Pulpwood Company because I was doing some uh, research for them on surveillance cameras because a lot of their equipment, People were breaking them, um, stealing mm. parts off of them, and things like that that were left in the woods. And I was working on a system that would um, send a signal um, to their cell, fo- their cell phone, alerting them that somebody's down there right away, and here's a couple pictures um, that they could see who's doing the, the, uh, the, the destruction on the machines. Um, 
So I still had that paperwork from, from years prior. It was called the Glatfelter Paper Company out of Fredericksburg. So I still had that with me when I went down um, just in case something happened and people want to know what I was doing. So I get down there, and these quads come over the hill, ask me what I'm doing. I'm showing them the paper, and they said that this company, the Glatfelter Company, sold that property to another pulpwood company you know, like five or six years ago. Um, and I said, oh, I didn't know that. You know, sorry about that. And I said, I'm just going down to take some pictures of nature down by the river and stuff like that. And they said, no, you got to get off this property immediately um, or you'll be subject to arrest. And I was like, wow. I said, I just can't go down and take some pictures. <coughs> Excuse me. I said, no, um, you have to leave now. So um, I basically, I looked at their, their, their shoes and things like that. They weren't uh, like hiking boots or anything else or any other type of boots. They were just normal day shoes, which I, I thought was interesting. Um, but uh, at the time I, I had the job where I had clearances and stuff and I, I'm like, well, hell, I'm not going to get arrested for this. So I ended up just turning around and uh, apologizing and saying, you know, see you later. Um, and they said, you know, don't come back. I said, I won't, no problem. So uh, I walked back out and I was just, totally frustrated because within seconds of getting into that uh, open area, uh, they come flying down the hill. So there was something going on. I don't know if they, I didn't see any cameras, but when you're in the woods, not expecting them, you're not looking for them. Maybe they thought you were some kind of industrial spy or something, you know? Who knows? Working for a rival uh, lumber company or something. Yeah. yeah. But you know, it's, it's private property. I did not have the up-to-date permission. Um, you know, I was just going on a hunch that it was still owned by the same company, but obviously it wasn't, so I got out of there. Um, so I didn't get the pictures for Daniel, but I, I did try. Um, so that was, that's where it was left. Uh, one interesting uh, uh, end of this uh, whole story was I went back to the uh, agent's house that lived across the street. Um, <clears throat> so I, I called him, and he had since retired um, from the uh, agency uh, or from the, the bureau. And um, he was working for another company at the time, and they were doing some of the uh, circuit boards for the cameras I was working on, the I gotcha ones. And I met him down there when I was um, going over some of the designs on the circuit board for the manufacturing, and I found out he was working down there part-time after retiring from uh, the bureau. Um, and he said, oh, stop by when you get a chance. And this is the first time I've, I've talked to him since, since that day that we had the sighting. And um, it ended up where... Uh, we, uh, you know, I did go down to his house and we started talking and I said, I'd like to make an audio recording of this if possible. And he said, sure, no problem. So I discussed the, uh, the what happened that day, what we did, um, where we went, what we saw. And then it came down to the siding and I said, you know, Frank, uh, the other agent spotted something out of his peripheral vision. He's like, yep. Um, you know, you guys pulled your sidearms because you saw something go behind the trees. Like, yep. And then I said, you know, popped its head out, yep. And then I said, what was it that you saw running in front of us from our left to right, 75 feet in behind the, uh, down the woods? Um, he said, what? I said, what, 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 what was it that you saw? And he says, I didn't see anything. And I, I was just totally flabbergasted that he said that because everything up to that second was perfect. And... Um, I asked him a dozen different ways what he saw, 
and he said, I didn't see anything. And then that was it. I, I said, all right. I, I just sort of gave up and said, this is weird. Um, oh. And so I, I put the, micro, or the the recorder down on the table, and I started talking about some friends that we knew and some of the past workers and jobs and things like that. And then he looked at me, and he said, you're going to turn that recorder off. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, I left it on. And uh, so I ended up turning it off, and he says, well, hand it to me. And so he looked at it, and he made sure it was it was off and uh, gave it back to me. Um, and he said, there's still strange shit going on down in those woods. And I go, what do you mean? Mm. He says, just strange shit. So um, he didn't want to talk about it, but he's, he's scared to death of what's going on down there. There's something happening um, that that has come into his life a little bit. He's just scared as hell of the strange stuff that's going on in those woods. So he would never talk about it any more than that. Um, so we uh, parted him, and, and you know, I said, told him thank you very much, and that's as far as we got. You know, he would and not come out this, and say William? what he saw. 1995, March. I mean, that's March when you talked to him. Oh, this was um, this was about let's see, 95, uh, 105, 150, about almost. Um, He's almost 20 years later. I talked to him about Okay, it. so 20 years later, he's saying there's still stuff going on down in the woods. Yeah, yep. Wow. Yeah. So huh. and I, I did try to get there. There is a um, hunting, um, uh, I guess, a hunting uh, group that supposedly hunts in that area. But when I call up and try to go down there and, and you know, talk to these guys about, um, you know, buying into the hunt club, all they do is say we're full. We're full. We're not taking any new members. We're full. Um, and that's it. You know, they never have any other things saying that, the, you know, something will open up down the road. Uh, they're always full, and it's a really quick quick uh, conversation. So, um, you know, I don't know what's going on down there, but there's, there's something's going on. Um, it's an interesting area. It's a large area. It's it's There is some... Um, homes around there but they're still pretty close to the road and you still have to go a a good half mile to a mile in um but in that whole area there it's just it's just trees just uh pulpwood and um lake uh, i'm sorry rivers streams uh old mine shafts we did find a few old mines down there that nobody knew about um nothing was in them but uh we did we did find them Uh, but there's a lot of collapsed uh pits quartz pits, things like that, all over the place. There's vertical mine shafts that went straight down, um, and some of the timbers have floated up to the top. Um, you know, just it's an amazing place. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm not going to go back down there again with, with all that stuff going on, and I can't get legal permission to do so, so forget it. It's not going to happen. Well, can we talk about the Bodette video? Let's do sure. that. Sure. Yeah, that's a that's that's something that's close to my heart because uh, uh, Scott had given me the um, the name of the attorney up in New Jersey that handles the uh, the Bodet video footage. Um, I tried to get in touch with uh, Pete Bodet, but through Facebook that didn't get anywhere. Um, so Scott gave me the uh, the contact information for the attorney up in Northern New Jersey. I contacted him and talked to him over the phone. Um, I told him at the time, I said, you know, from what I could see on the ABC News footage that is sort of 
in the public domain. Um, I said, that's pretty interesting. I'd like to see more. And I told him that I'd, I do some video enhancements and things like that um, through part of my jobs at the uh, working for the government at, um, uh, customers quite a bit. Um, and I told him I'd like to enhance the, uh, the Baudet footage and try to bring out whatever that is that's in the footage um, in some type of clarity. And uh, he said, sure, we could talk about it. So uh, we made a date. It was um, December 1st, uh, 2016. Um, that he said, come on up. So um, I took a day off of work, drove up there, and this is um, northern New Jersey, a uh, pretty, pretty busy area. I uh, got up there about, um, I think it was around 5 p.m. or so. Uh, we sat and talked for a while. Um, he wanted to see what my intent was. I uh, told him that I would like to enhance it um, and see exactly what the footage could, uh, what the enhancement could bring out in the footage. Um, and so we talked and then he looked at me and he said, would you like to see the footage? And I'm like, sure. And so, uh, he explained, he brought out an SD card. It was not the original tape. It was an SD card. Um, and he, he started going through the footage and the footage is a series of, um, video clips that were taken, you know, over about a 20 to 30 minute period, um, and Pete Baudet at the time was having some battery issues. Uh, the batteries would cut out. Uh, they were low anyway um, from filming that day. And um, he, they saw this thing for about 10 or 15 minutes, what he claimed was swimming around the area. And they couldn't figure out what it was because all I could see was um, something protruding from the surface a little bit, um, like a log or something like that that was moving around. But they said this thing just kept going around the boat and, um, you know, it was about 20, 30, 40 yards away, and uh, they couldn't figure out what it was, and they were filming it a little bit while it was doing that, and then it started coming towards the boat, a uh, direct line of path, and, it, and Pete got the, uh, the camcorder out again and was filming it, <clears throat> and um, it came towards the boat. Um, again, it cut out one or two times with the battery, um, and then it went underneath the boat as he was filming, um, and then it sort of came up on the other side um, underwater and uh, you could see it and um, then the batteries just, just died. You know, the, the whole camcorder just shut down and that was it. Um, but I think the, uh, after reviewing all the different segments um, from that little SD card on the computer, um, the attorney let me, you know, zoom in, fast forward, uh, reverse, you know, still frame, let me look at the whole footage and there were a lot of things on there that they didn't notice initially um, when they, after they reviewed the footage in 2005. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of evidence I think in that film to justify that this is a uh, living, breathing plesiosaur type creature. Um, one thing well, I noticed that immediately. Lake Champlain, correct. Yeah, the Lake Champlain. Yeah. This was the video footage was in 2005. And roughly the same areas where we got our sonar blob and yes, clicking yes, sounds was, last summer. <clears throat> yep, and that's what directed us to that spot was um, from the viewing of this Baudet footage back in December 1st of 2016. There was so much evidence um, that I think in that footage to prove that this is some type of plesiosaur type creature. Um, you know, that's why 
I, I ended up hauling that boat up to Lake Champlain um, and, and spending the money to do all that and, and the boat maintenance and repairs and things like that and the marina charges and all that. Um, I'm convinced that even though there's bits and pieces of evidence in that film, as a whole, as you look at that's the best evidence I've ever seen. Even though it's poor evidence, it's still the best I've ever seen. Um, well, it's very difficult on, to interpret because, you know, what looks like a long neck and a plesiosaurish-looking head, they're insistent, are flippers. But there is a, a segment of the video, which I'm sure you've seen, I've heard about, where it comes out the other side of the boat and there's a head pops up, a Sicilian-looking head you described to me. Yeah, the the head um, the head that I saw on the footage, and, and that was a one single frame that that they didn't even know. I was going frame by frame, and they always watched it in the video mode. Um, there's only like one frame that shows this horse-like shaped head uh, that I saw, um, and that was that was close to the surface where mm. there was a lot of um, movement, and the water was. But like it's a white... definitely not. The same object that you see off the side where, where you see the video segment, where you see the boat rail, it's not the same object. No, it's not the same object. The the, the part that came over on the other side of the boat is definitely, I think, definitely the head. The uh, the part that we see as it goes under the boat is is basically the main body itself. Um, the movement that you see, I'm convinced they're flippers. Um, and the reason for that is because a lot of the, well, the video that nobody's ever seen, well, a few people have seen, um, shows Baudet uh, filming this this subject as it's coming towards the boat. And as the subject, I'm, I'm calling this creature the subject, um, as this the subject's coming closer to the boat, you could actually see the um, the little vortices it's making in the waters from the flipper. And there's two on the right, two on the left. And they're about 20 feet apart, um, and they they appear at the surface at the same time. And it's like this this creature, this subject, uses both flippers at the same time to push forward. And those little vortices that form on the surface of the water, the little swirls that you see, um, I'm positive those are made by the flippers, because it, it seems like the the creature pushes off, and then it glides for about 20 feet. And during that time, those little vortices pop up to the surface and you see the swirls. Um, It coasts for like 20 feet. Those vortices that were on the surface dissipate and disappear. Um, It coasts for 20 feet. And then again, you see the the vortices form on the surface again. And this pattern um, happened two or three times as it was coming closer towards the boat. Um, Now, in in the video, there's... The segment on the ABC News clip, the main segment that everybody is excited about, mm-hmm. you see up in the, I guess it would be the upper left-hand corner, a reflection or some kind of a box-shaped object. There's been debate about what that is. Yeah, that's just that's just reflected clouds, sunlight, things like that. you got to remember that the algae is was ever present in that lake at the time. Um, yeah, well, you know, and, I'm inclined to think it was a reflection of something on the boat. 
that something about, you know, uh, something that's on the side no, of the I, boat yeah. and the way the sun's hitting it, you know. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's, just, it's just the ways of the reflection. Yeah, the reflection of the light in the video that he took, because he was videotaping sort of all around the area when this was going on, and there were no other boats or anything like that. There, there wasn't anything that I saw hanging off of the boat. Um, when he was sort of panning between the right side and left side and yeah. forward. Uh, there just wasn't anything out there. And it's just like when we were out there, there was nobody at that area. There was just nobody. Yeah, um, it was. And, and when you're talking older equipment, video equipment stuff, and the, the way the light reflects off of the waves and things like that, that, that light could be anything. But um, I didn't well, I see any able evidence to find... of other boats there. I was able to find a piece of video footage of a leatherback turtle under similar circumstances, and you can see the reflections of the sun making all kinds of weird images in the water, on the surface of the water. So maybe it's a similar phenomenon to that. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's one thing we didn't experiment. Uh, we, we did take some video of the water surface, some of the wave patterns, things like that. Um, I, I, in reviewing that footage, I didn't see anything that was similar to that uh, that he I've was I've got filming. several still photographs I took that day. Um, mm-hmm. One thing we should explain to people, we normally go up to the lake in June or July, but this year we're doing it in September. And the main reason why is that Will is going to be speaking at Lauren Coleman's com- conference in Maine mm-hmm. in early awesome. September. So we're trying mm-hmm. to just put this all together to where he can just come directly from the Cryptozoology Conference straight to Vermont, and I'm already there, and, you know, we can just, yeah. rather right. than having two convoluted trips. Right, yep. Yeah, I'm hoping to do okay, it. I, do I do have some... how do you get tickets to the conference? Well, if, if you go to Lauren, Lauren Coleman's, um, on Facebook, his, his uh, site there, um, it gives you the link to the International Cryptozoology Museum um, and the conference, and you could purchase tickets through there. Okay, okay great. Um, Do you hear that, listeners? Yeah. You really need to go check this out. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm hoping. I have some uh, really serious medical issues going on, um, so I'm battling a, a, a couple big things. So um, I'm hoping that uh, that um, I'm able to make it up there um, mm-hmm. for the conference, uh, physically, mentally able to do that. Um, yeah. I, would, I will be towing. Um, I am selling my larger boat. Um, it's just too big for me to handle right now um, because of the medical issues, um, plus the towing issues and things like that. So I am looking at other smaller boats, um, you know, maybe the, the 24-foot size, 25-foot size uh, length. Um, I'm seriously looking at those, and if I do get that, I will be towing the boat up to uh, Lawrence Museum. Uh, we'll be outfitted with the thermal and everything else up there. Um, well, you and, know, uh, I might be able to make arrangements for you to drop it off in Vermont before you go to Maine, unless you want to take it with you. No, I was the the idea was to take it take it to Maine and display oh, it up okay. there to sort of highlight the technology we're using and things like that in the, the Lake Monster research. Mm-hmm. Um, that'll be a great thing for people to see because it's it's definitely mm-hmm. not just a boat. Um, so yeah, so then I, I would. Uh, I figured I'd get up there last week of mm-hmm. August. First couple of days of September to where you, all you have to do is turn around from the conference and meet me in Vermont and we yeah. go from there. Yeah, I may do. Um, I may have to do some type of um, 
Uh, I'm thinking of starting a, um, a tax deductible, a 501c3, uh, to help generate some, some donations because um, I'm, I'm out of work right now. I'm on long-term disability. Um, my pay was drastically cut because of that. Um, I'm undergoing a lot of stuff, so um, I no longer have that steady stream of income from my previous job. Uh, so I'm on a very tight budget now. So uh, getting the boat is a, a leap of faith. Um, and then getting up there is, is another leap because uh, you're talking gas, um, insurance, all that sort of thing. Um, you know, getting the boat ready. I, I did keep the sonar from the old from the older boat uh, to put on the new boat, so at least that's part of the, the technology that I could still keep at the lake. Um, but I'm definitely going to need some extra funds to get up there. The, just the gas alone is is very expensive to tow something well i've i've got the gofundme thing that i've had for a couple of years now too to try to help raise money for us too so yeah yeah but i I need some i need some big some serious money because it's it's thousands of dollars um just to get up there and back you know with with everything that you know you, you know the uh slip rental and stuff if we're staying at the boat dock in the marina um nice to have use of the bathroom and showers there and things like that all that yeah on my current income that's it's going to be very difficult yeah but anyway yep yep yeah. i'm still shooting for the uh, conference and then to the lake um hopefully uh i'm physically able to to do that um and that's a sort of a point in the future that i'm Putting my yeah. stake down well, and saying, you know, at least you recently it, so. got good news from the doctor. So that, that's, yeah, yeah, that was pretty good. Um, yeah, it's it's something that uh, doesn't go away, but at least it's good news for the time being. So I'm very happy with that. Yeah, um, and I would recommend to people if they want to check out what we've been doing for the last few years, <laughs> to go check out Alexander Petikov's film on the Trail of Champ, which is recently put out by uh, Small Town Monsters. Mm-hmm. So if you haven't yep. seen that, that will give you an idea of the type of work we've been trying to do. Right. And, yeah, a couple other things real quick on the Baudet video, um, because that is, that's, that's a big highlight for me, and that's what's sort of powering the, these trips up to Lake Champlain. Um, I, I totally believe 100% that what he filmed was a plesiosaur-type creature. Um, that's what they think it is, too. Um, they haven't gone public with anything. I know they're asking a astronomical amount for that video uh, to purchase. Um, but with my intent to go up there to enhance it, I was able to see everything. Um, one thing that was very interesting that from what it looks like, it looks like the eyes are somewhat forward-facing as it was coming towards the boat. Um, and it wasn't until I think six months ago or four months ago that uh, they discovered some some fossil record of a, a skull of a plesiosaur type creature. And it, it did have the forward facing eyes on it. Yeah. Um, they all had sort forward of blue, facing blue. eyes. Okay. Not and the, the nostrils uh, well, were so in the middle facing, of the I mean, snout in front of the eyes. Right. Yeah. But they were, they were definitely forward facing on the video. Yeah. Um, also what was interesting um, was there was a slight bow wake in the front of this creature's snout that you could see in the video. So it was like, it was just below the surface enough to see, 
um, enough to raise its eyes above the surface of the water coming straight towards the boat. But also some of the evidence was, um, the forensic evidence there was that there was a small little bow wake like in the front of a boat or a rowboat. If you're going very slow, you create this little wake. And that was, I think, from the snout of this creature below the surface, maybe just a, a couple inches or so below. Um, you sort of see that same bow wake on a submarine that's on the surface as it's moving forward. Um, I saw the same thing on the video um, as it was coming towards the boat. And um, what happened was when this creature was coming towards the boat, they said it was like it's coming straight for us. And um, they were getting a little nervous. And as it was coming forward and seeing those little eddies on the surface, it's sort of right before it got to the boat, it dived down. And when you see the ABC footage, um, you look at those, and I was able to enhance them somewhat. And um, looking at them, you could actually see an articulation in the joint when it's attached to the body. And both flippers were move, moving at the same time. And also, just like a, um, a propeller on an airplane, uh, it's called a variable pitch prop uh, for, for power and things like that. They could adjust the pitch as they're flying for better gas mileage and power. And um, what I noticed in this, the, the appendages of the flippers, was that where it attached to the body, where the flipper attached to the body, that had the same type of basic mechanics as the, um, as the airplane props do, where it has this, this turning ability or pivoting ability. And as it came towards the boat, this creature was coming towards the boat, that articulation in the flipper turned, and at the same time, both flippers pushed upwards towards the surface, propelling the creature below the boat so it was very close to the surface and it knew that it had to actually go under the boat and to do so it had to push itself down and that's exactly what i'm calling the flippers in that abc footage are doing and you can see that when it's enhanced a little bit that articulation and the movement of the flippers uh, and uh, what was what was very interesting that that sold me on this whole thing was that um, back in the early days when I was growing up, my father owned a fish market in Connecticut. And he would go to Boston every Tuesday morning and buy fish from the fishing pier. And when I would go up there with him, we'd pull up, we'd go down to the pier. Um, he'd back his truck up there. The boats would come in. He'd buy the fish right off of the boats. And I'm talking swordfish and everything else. And you could see the whole swordfish and everything. Um, and a lot of those deep-sea fish had a lot of scars and things on their body. And the scars would normally heal, heal in a white color. And that was sort of typical of some of these deep fish. And um, I saw that over the years, and it wasn't until I saw the Baudet footage that the flippers on the right side of this subject or creature um, had a continuous line of white going down the side um, at the tip of the flipper. Um, and the and what I'm calling the tip of the flipper was actually, um, I think that that creature um, had a boat strike um, or a propeller strike and took off the points of the flippers themselves because from what I'm seeing that I see are the flippers, the ends are flat and straight line. They're not pointed or tipped like a lot of the fossil records indicate. Um, but along the lines of where that was, where I think that was struck through some accident through a boat, through the rudder on the boat, could have been a sailboat too. I think the tips were cut off, and the area that they were cut off um, show this white 
the same type of a dull white um, scarring tissue with the same type of white that I've seen on um, some of the injuries on the swordfish. Well, you see uh, a lot of injuries like that, too, on manatees where they've been hit yeah. by boat propellers. Yeah. So, it's real common here in you know, Florida. Yeah, so if other people out there listening want to do some some enhancements on that ABC footage, go at it. And I, I think they may come up, come up with the same thing, where they see the articulation of the flipper, so it pushes the, the creature below the boat. Um, and it's not like a mechanical paddle. This does have fluid movements along the flipper itself. It's not like a, a straight board. It's got some fluids going, fluid dynamics going on there that convinced me that this was a, a, a flesh and blood creature. Um, and both flippers acting at the same time to push itself under the boat were exactly the same as pushing itself along the water or under the water with those, uh, the ripples in the water and the swirling patterns that I saw. Um, and this creature that they filmed was moving slowly. It wasn't fast. Um, and that sort of makes me believe that this creature is not a fast-moving creature because a lot of the video taken of supposedly the creature in Lake Champlain and um, over at Loch Ness, they show this thing moving really quick. I think those are just standing waves. Um, and the only reason I think that is because of what I saw in the Baudet footage. Um, it's unfortunate that the Baudet team doesn't sell the footage or make it public. Um, I have no idea. I know they want a lot of money for it. Oh, um, really? I asked to do, yeah. When I did the enhancements on it, um, or on, on one of the, uh, the, the the ABC footage, that's that's what they gave me to it. They said, okay, enhance this. And I I was like, I already did that. Um, you know, I want to get some other footage. Um, but I agreed not to, um, you know, make it public after doing the enhancements and stuff. I just wanted to see it for myself. And uh, they ended up, the attorney ended up sending me a, a non-disclosure agreement. And it was so one-sided and ridiculous because they said mm. that this footage is priceless if if any single image any single image makes it out to the public from any of the footage uh, we will sue you your family your relatives because of this is oh the priceless God. footage and you destroy it by selling out you know we're going to sue you and when you have an attorney that sends you this this non-disclosure agreement that states that in the in the uh, non-disclosure agreement itself, it's like, you've got to be kidding me. You know, this is, this is bull. So I, I declined. I, I wrote back and said, you know, I, I was in good faith wanting to do the enhancements, um, but because of this, this non-disclosure agreement, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I definitely will not sign it. So, I, um, uh, but at least, uh, I, at least I got to see the footage. That was the big thing, and I'm convinced. So that footage is not available to view online uh, on the Internet. Parts of no, it, it is. is not. The ABC News clip, but not the full video. Right. Oh, okay. Yep. So um, the ABC I just went News looked up Somebody that wanted something. to find it, what would they need to type into their search engine? Go to Go to YouTube and punch in... Lake Champlain Monster ABC News. It should take you right to okay. it. All right, cool. I just went and yeah. looked up to see about the speed question. The most famous piece of film of the Loch Ness Monster swimming is Tim Dinsdale's film from 1960, which shows this hump-like object moving across Loch Ness. And according to 
estimates that object, the, the hump, is moving 7 to 10 miles per hour. Now, allegedly, the largest known marine reptile that we know about today, the leatherback turtle, has been clocked going faster than that, has been clocked going 21, almost 22 miles an hour. So that would give us an idea about how fast these things are possibly capable of moving. Um, but, I, you know, I don't know. Is there any way of calculating, you think, from the Bodette video, how fast it's moving in that particular video? Only if I was able to get a hold of the video. Mm. You know, there, it did have a time date stamp on there and everything else, so it does have the time. Mm. It's um, just not enough in the ABC clip to, to do that. No, no, yeah, definitely well, not. No, nope. Unfortunately. Yeah. But that would, what I, the, 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 the figures I just quoted give you a, a ballpark idea of how yep. fast these things may be capable of right. moving. So. Right. And you got to remember, too, the, 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 footage, um, I, I, the footage that I saw, I also think that there's some, some type of um, acoustic stunning effect going on. Some of the wave patterns that I noticed on the, on the um, water surface uh, several times during the, the Baudet footage seemed to me to indicate that there's some type of acoustical signal going out from this creature, um, which oh, could be used to, stun, used to stun fish. And that is also in the footage that they didn't even see. There's an, uh, an array of peaks and valleys that appear in certain, types, certain times of the footage that are definitely not natural. Um, it's something that's produced underwater causing these these peaks and valleys in this special type of uh, size array to actually show themselves on the surface in these in these little waves these wave patterns um, and that happened several times during the footage and I think that's basically produced by the creature itself and that's what it uses to stun fish um, so it doesn't have to swim super fast to to catch its prey um, it could just mosey around and that's what the the uh, the Baudet um, attorney said, and Pete Baudet said the same thing. He said, you know, this creature was fishing just like we were. And wow. these guys were professional fishermen. So they knew what was going on. They were there for the special type of fish they were going after. And they knew where to go and when to go. And it just happened to be that this creature shows up at the same time. And it's doing the fishing just yeah. like they are. So there was, um, there was a lot of interesting stuff going on. And it's unfortunate that the... That the Bodak camp um, and the attorney um, isn't releasing the footage because I think through the bits and pieces of that footage is so far uh, by far the best evidence out there of uh, plesiosaur type creature. Um, well, Sander Manzi's photo is still impressive too. Yes. Yep. Oh yeah. Yep. But to have the dynamics of, of time-based, where you could movement. actually yeah, absolutely. movement, time, all that sort of thing, it's it's another step up um, from the Nancy photo. But uh, right what now, do you, it's, what do it's you impossible think to get of it. Eric Olson's video? It's interesting. Um, I, I, you know, I wish it could be better, but it's a pretty decent video. But still, um, it's. To me, it's undecided. I'd like to go there and take a look at the area and the try really to recreate it. The really thing about the Olsen video as compared to the Budette video 
mm-hmm. and the Mansi photograph is that the creature in the Olsen video appears to have a much shorter neck than what you see in the other photographs, if those are necks. So, I don't mm-hmm. know. I mean, you know, uh, I'm more impressed with Sandra Mansi's photograph and the mm-hmm. Bodette video than I am with the mm-hmm. Olsen video, but I still think the Olsen video is something interesting, too. So, we're getting yeah. sort what of that video for people who may not know uh, what you're referring to. This is a video that was shot at Oak Ridge Park at Lake Champlain in 2009. Got a lot of attention. What you see, you see this turtleish-looking object or creature swimming past a buoy mm. and kind of bobbing up and down. When you first see it, it looks like a really big turtle, but it's obviously, they, you know, based on the objects in the background, it's been estimated to be at least the visible portion at least six feet long, so it's bigger than any stamping turtle. The stamping turtles don't usually get bigger than two and a half feet, so it looks like an animal of some sort. Nobody's been able to identify it. It's, you know, it is what it is. But like I was talking about at the beginning of the program, I think the emphasis should be on finding a type specimen. And what could qualify as a type specimen are bones of a recently dead individual, which I tried to do some of that last summer, but I want to really try to concentrate on that this summer. And the other idea is possibly getting a a tissue sample with biopsy darts. And they're totally harmless. They use them in well, in shark research all the time, it just takes a little small plug of tissue from the animal. A tissue sample in itself would help identify the animal and would also give you information about the genetic health of the population of the animal. But I don't think a tissue sample itself would be enough to qualify as a type specimen. A tissue sample combined with bones would probably qualify as a type specimen. And we have to be careful with that because all around the sides and bottoms of Lake Champlain, there are bones of creatures that lived during the Champlain Sea, like the the Sherlock whale skeleton was found in 1849. It was found in a bluff on the side of Lake Champlain. And, and the reason it was found up on a bluff is that used to be the old shoreline of the Champlain Sea, and the water level has gone down. So what was once the shoreline is now up on a bluff because the water level has decreased significantly, something like 150 feet. So anyway, we're hoping to look for caves in the sides of the lake. We have a diver that's going to be working with us. If we find what looks like a possible cave, we're going to send the diver down, if it's feasible, to look and see if there are bones inside the caves in hopes of retrieving a skeleton or a piece of a skeleton or something. So hmm. That's, where that's the good. This should, you guys have should, a diver. Yeah, I mean, this is the only thing that's going to take it out of the realm of stories and, and uh, possible hoaxes and and 
make it concrete, make it a real animal. And those, that's the least harmful way of doing, of establishing that, if we can find something. Once they're recognized as being real animals, then they will be given full protection, which they deserve. You know, I'm saying let's find them, prove they exist, then back away and leave them alone. That's that's my sentiments anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so because, you know, we do so much good for our fellow uh, animals, don't we, as a human race? Yeah, well, think about uh, if you have one breakthrough in discovering one of these cryptozoology animals, think of the benefit that's going to have for the whole field. If we can prove that Champ is real, then people will turn around and say, okay, well, maybe Bigfoot's real too, and we just haven't found it yet. So, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely um, some potential out there with the advancement of technology. You would think... Eventually, something would turn up. Well, you know, we've the, got the research. It's not going to jump into our lab. We have to go. We have to go find it. Exactly, and there's not finding, a lot of people out a there dead that I know that can just spend a lot the of the least harmful way of doing time, that. money, and I mean, it's a challenge. <laughs> so, Will, what are your thoughts on this? Wow. Well, you know, on the. Uh, the creature itself, yeah. I, I after seeing the Bigfoot creature is alive. Um, I've seen a total of five of them. Because um, I, I did a lot of work and I had the cabin up in West Virginia. Um, I saw a total of uh, the one in Virginia and four in um, West Virginia. Uh, closest up there was 100 feet away. We watched each other for 10 minutes. Um, I definitely know the Bigfoot creatures are alive and well. Um, I have no idea where they live, why can't they be found, and why there's no fossil records. Um, but yes, I do know that they do exist, realize. So. You do realize that even though you're convinced, that's never going to convince a skeptic. The only thing right. that's ever going to convince a skeptic is a type specimen. Right. In order well, right to break now, through just, that wall, we have to do, we have to find something. Right. But if you if, you know you go back on history, um, what is it? The seal camp, the fish uh, they found off of uh, the South coast Africa, of Africa yeah. there. Yeah. Um, you know, once they found it, every every university wanted a type specimen. So they really almost uh, fished, you know, fished out that fish to extinction. Well, that's uh, Just true. so everybody yeah. could get a specimen. So so when you see these things yourself, the flesh and blood, the Bigfoot creatures, you sort of back down a little bit. You know, you still want to get the evidence, but then you worry, what happens if I present the evidence where everybody goes into the woods with guns and tries hunting these things down? I, I do well, think that's the creatures why you get are, them protected. Yeah, and the same thing with Lake Champlain. I know what's going on up there. They're dumping hundreds sewage, of tons yeah. of sewage, raw sewage. That's what really ticks me off. Mm, horrible, <laughs> is yeah. They're dumping this raw sewage into the boat, but yet the Coast Guard does not allow you to um, open your waste tanks of sewage in the lake, which is, is fine with me. That's why they have the pump-out stations around the lake. Uh, but you could be fined up to like $10,000 and everything else. If you're caught releasing sewage into the lake, yeah, good. Uh, Burlington could drop off all this all this uh, raw sewage um, into the lake and not worry about it. So, yeah, I think uh-huh. the sooner the better. These creatures are discovered. Um, that maybe this this dumping of sewage would stop. It's just 
it seems well, to happen there's a lot of, in the last know, few if, months. If it was found, there's the, the impact that it would ultimately have is, is hard to, to quantify because there's already tension between commercial sports fishing industry on Lake Champlain and fish yep. and wildlife conservation. Right. Yep. What's going to happen yeah, when you throw a, a novel species into the middle of that mix? You know, mm-hmm. yep. who, who knows? You know, yep. uh, protecting champ and, and uh, controlling access to the water for vacationers and boaters and all this stuff would have a profound uh, economic impact as well. Right. Yep. But you would have also added tourism from people wanting to try to come and see this thing if there's a way yep. to do that, you know. Yeah. Yep. So we don't you know, it's opening up Pandora's box, but in order to break through that other wall that's that's gonna have to happen at some point. Yep. If we're gonna have in, a, a a breakthrough of some kind and you yeah, know right. get it out of the realm of of so and so said this and so and so said that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, we look forward to um, you guys going there in September and reporting back everything that's going on, and uh, we could probably even maybe do a live show uh, with you guys up there once you get settled in. Yeah, technology's uh, around. Do a sure. Sea live okay. show. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Great. That we would do be great. That would be great. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Yep. So we're running in about less than two minutes, um, and I wanted to go ahead and wrap things up. Uh, you got everybody stay tuned to Monster X Radio uh, blog site for upcoming information concerning um, the expedition that they might be going on. We'll keep you guys posted. Um, and if we do a live show, we will give everybody plenty of heads up uh, time to to tune in. Um, so that's something we definitely want to plan. I want to thank uh, our guest, William, today for joining us and for Scott for continuing the saga of the, the Haunted Sea. Um, we want to ma- invite everybody to join us back here again for our next show, which will be within about a, less than a month. So definitely stay tuned, and, and thank you, gentlemen, for being on the show today. Thank you, Thank Julie. you, Julie. Thank you, Will. All right. Thanks, thanks, Scott. Yeah, man. All right, we'll talk great soon. Show. And everybody have a great week, and uh, we'll see you back here on the Haunted Sea with Scott Martis. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.